Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, it's time for the first in a series of programmes focusing on UBS's annual flagship Greater China Conference, the 22nd edition of which has been taking place this past week, with the theme A New Horizon, People, Planet, Prosperity. To cater to exactly that new normal, the GCC 2022 edition has been a virtual event featuring five days of keynote speeches and panel discussions. Investor meetings will be taking place in the days ahead. The GCC continues to enjoy tremendous interest with over 4,500 registered attendees, including more than 3,500 institutional investors and in excess of 280 Chinese-listed and private companies. In the coming weeks on this programme, we'll be dipping into the GCC and bringing you insights and highlights from the event. Today, we start with a review of a fascinating panel, the first day's keynote indeed, entitled Monetary Policy 2022, Behind the Curve. On that panel were Axel Weber, chairman of UBS, Zhu Min, chairman of the National Institute of Financial Research at Tsinghua University, former deputy managing director of the IMF and former deputy governor of the People's Bank of China. And finally, Dr. Randall S. Krosner, the Norman R. Bobbins Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago Booth School and himself former governor of the U.S. Federal Reserve System from 2006 to 2009. So each of the three former central bank governors at one time or another, and all mindful of the impact that the coronavirus and its many and varied corollary effects have had over the now more than two years since the start of the pandemic. We start with a bit of a scene setter from our panellists, starting with Zoom in on China. Here's his take on the monetary policy picture for 2022. For the Chinese monetary policy in 2022, I can see three terms. Prudence and proper liquidity for the market and flexibility. Let me try to explain. Prudent. Prudence just means you maintain a very careful balance between the over you know, accommodating and the too tightening. I think that's very important. I don't think China needs an over easy monetary policy at this moment because liquidity is still ample and the growth is still in a normal track. Even IMF project 5.6% for this year is still not a bad number. It's good though. So I don't think we should do that. Although much talking about that China should have or will have an easy monetary policy. I don't think so. But maintain the proper liquidity for the market is also important because that means if U.S. takes some action you know, strongly and we cause the market liquidity shift back and forth, and the central bank should be able to maintain the liquidity. And the flexibility is more means the policy against you take the the policy, short-term policy against the U.S. Fed in the policy number one, number two, and also more consider the monetary transmission mechanism issues, so focus on the key issues like SME and the sectors like uh, carbon neutrality, so green financing issues, and like you know innovation tech sectors, and use a structured monetary policy with the flexibility to support it's a new engine of growth to keep the balancing of the whole thing. I think that will be basically the monetary policy for the year 2022. Next up, Randy Krosner with the US view, delivered from his vantage point at the London campus of the Chicago Booth School of Business. 
exactly as uh, Minit said, an incredibly challenging time for, for central bankers trying to balance off, making sure there's enough support for growth, but not having so much support that inflation takes off as it has already in the US and much of, uh, much of Europe and potentially becomes unstoppable. And that's really the, uh, the, the, key, uh, the key challenge. In the US, facing effectively uh, labor shortages, we see very high quit rates, uh, record high quit rates. People only quit when they believe that the labor market is extremely strong and they have a lot of good prospects going forward. And that's clearly what people believe. We've been seeing significant increases in wages, both really throughout the entire spectrum at the, um, at the lower end of the spectrum for the uh, less skilled workers, as well as in higher end of the spectrum for more skilled skilled workers. We've uh, So that's an, an enormous challenge. That's one of the things that's been slowing the, the recovery. Another thing that has been slowing the recovery are exactly what Min had talked about, some of the supply chain disruptions. It's difficult to get chips to build cars. There was just an article uh, saying that uh, Toyota has overtaken General Motors in being the largest seller of cars in the United States. 30, 40 years ago, that would have been unthinkable. Today, of course, it happens because the, the markets are so globalized and um, we have a lot of competition from different uh, uh, different organizations in the U.S. And uh, also Toyota managed the supply chain better. So there were fewer uh, disruptions in terms of uh, shortages of, of chips. We're going to continue to see those uh, those challenges going uh, going forward, and I think, but for those challenges and the supply side, both on the labor supply as well as on the uh, good supply, the U.S. is poised to grow very very strongly. Exactly as Minute also said, in the U.S. there's a lot of pent up demand. People had not been going out and want to go out. People had been saving a lot uh, because during the uh, the pandemic, there was a lot of uh, fiscal stimulus, a lot of checks that were sent out and have continued to be sent out. We sent or spent three trillion right when the pandemic hit, which I think was totally sensible. Another trillion back in December of uh, of last year, and then uh, a couple of uh, a few more trillion that have been spent on on different um, uh, different bills so far. There has been some uh, some in some quarters disappointment that the Build Back Better bill doesn't look like it's going to go through. But I'm relieved. There's been so much spending. We're on the order of forty percent of GDP uh, fiscal spending in an 18 month period, that's really unprecedented. People have a lot of uh, resources in, uh, you know, their savings rates are relatively high and, uh, and they're feeling very confident. And so uh, you know, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of demand pressure also there. Now we come to monetary policy. This is the really tough one for the Fed. So I think they did exactly the right thing back in uh, March of last year, cut interest rates to, to zero, Revived all the programs uh, that we had pioneered when I was at the Fed a decade earlier, plus a whole lot more. And I think that was very important because there was so much uncertainty and we'd never had shutdowns of the economy like this. Even during the 1930s, you didn't have the economy contracting at a 30% annual rate in, you know, in a quarter because of a formal shutdown. Over the uh, 1929 to 1933 period, the economy did contract by about 30%, but you didn't have as extreme contraction as we did. And so it's no surprise you're getting some very strong, uh, very strong rebound. So how is the Fed going to get out of this? Because obviously inflation has gone up to be very high. Well, we finally got rid of the word transitory. I had been arguing for a while that transitory should be transitory and should be moved to the dustbin of history more rapidly. They had now gotten rid of that because obviously the combination of factors 
has led to very high inflation rates in the U.S. over the last six months, and I think at least for the next six months going forward. The labor market um, shortages are not going to be disappearing. We are seeing some more people come into the labor market, but we saw a lot of people retire. And, uh, and they are, I think many of those people are not coming back into the labor market because of concerns about, about health. We made a lot of progress on vaccines, a lot of progress on boosters, as well as on uh, treatments and there are new, new pills. But I think that's going to make uh, older people wary of coming back into the markets as they had um, before. That was one of the unusual things in the recovery since the global financial crisis. We had so many people coming in who were older workers. I don't think they're coming back. And on the supply side, I think we're going to continue to see a lot of dislocations. We saw some relaxation in some areas, but I think countries like China, which will be uh, seeing lockdowns as they, uh, they have now in response to the spread of the, uh, the new variant, uh, which is truly very highly transmissible, fortunately does not seem to be very, very deadly, but is super highly transmissible. That approach that China and much of Asia has taken will lead to um, lockdowns and lead to uh, supply constraints in much of Asia. And so I think some of the easing that we will have seen will be offset by this over the next few months. So we're going to continue to see a lot of pressure on, um, uh, on the Fed and, uh, and other central banks. The Fed has pivoted to say, okay, it's no longer transitional, transitory. Uh, we're going to be moving a little bit more rapidly and trying to move uh, to, to shrink or re reduce the uh, the increase in the size of the balance sheet, uh, the pace of the increase in the size of the balance sheet to uh, to taper. We're going to do that more rapidly so we can begin interest rate increases more quickly. And I think we'll see a lot of interest rate increases next year. I think at least three, because I think these price pressures are going to continue to uh, to, to be there. I think so far. Jay Powell and colleagues have done a very good job of explaining this and making this pivot and transition without causing excess volatility in the markets. We've seen some, but it's nothing like the taper trend from a decade ago, much smoother. And so I give uh, Jay and his colleagues a lot of credit for, uh, for walking that tightrope and explaining things, but it's going to be really tough balancing back through 22. And now Axel Weber with a European take on the monetary policy outlook. In December, the ECB has confirmed the expectation that was already widely in the market that it will end its net asset purchases in its PEP program by the end of March 2022. As I said, a largely expected period. They have extended the reinvestment phase of the maturing PEP securities until at least the end of 2024, with additional flexibility across time, asset classes and jurisdictions, not least to support Greece, whose sovereign bonds are included in the PEP program but are not part of the APP program because Greece at the moment is sub-investment grade. So some transition arrangements here that I think are always needed. The ECB has reiterated its open-ended commitment to the APP and announced it will raise the monthly purchases to $40 billion in the second quarter, $30 billion in the third quarter, before scaling back to $20 billion then. I think the macro projections we've seen coming out from the ECB were higher than expected. Inflation is at 1.8% for 2023 and 24, so close to target. But if you factor in that the ECB will move in 2026 to include official uh, numbers for owner-occupied housing in their CPI calculations, which could be run at 20 to 30 basis points under current estimates, then you are actually on target. At the same time, inflation in the short term soared to the highest since the euro was introduced. Currently, our economists expect ongoing ECB support, 
for the economy at least until the end of next year. And they actually expect that both the APP and interest rates will stay where they are. There is a growing risk that the ECB may tighten in the year following 2022. But I think at this point in time, uh, monetary policy looks, looks pretty much set to stay on course. I personally find that is surprising that it took so long for the Fed, the Bank of England and the ECB to recognize the inflation problem is not just transitory and that there is so little tightening expected and priced into the markets. I find that quite a surprise. I'm even more surprised that the ECB still largely denies the inflation problem and intends to further ease its monetary policy in the months to come. In the light of inflation forecasts basically at target and current inflation more than double the current target that needs uh, more explaining. Yes, inflationary pressures are low in the Eurozone. They are lower than in the United States at this point in time. Uh, and there are some jurisdictions like Switzerland, Japan, or uh, China where inflation hasn't yet arrived, but we all know that global inflation links exist. Inflation globally is running relatively high. There is a very strong and sharp increase in commodity prices. And this should be seen by central banks more as a warning sign that even if their own inflation rates lack global inflation, it's not a guarantee that inflation will not continue to trend up. So my expectation is for the months to come that inflation will remain stubbornly high in the United States and trend up in continue to surprise on the upside in many other jurisdictions, including Europe and the UK. So I expect central banks to gradually recognize that talking about inflation going down is going to be uh, something that needs to be supplemented by action. And with that, I'd really like to open uh, the panel. Uh, so Randy, you already uh, indicated that the Omicron variant does have an impact. It is more infectious, maybe less of a, a sort of fatal hazard, but quite clearly it does have an impact on the economy because if more people get infected, we are coming closer to critical infrastructures being difficult to run. So what is your expect? What does it mean for the recovery of the US, but maybe the, the global economy with this new variant taking uh, so much hold so fast? So I think clearly that's going to slow things down for the um, you know, December of last year and sort of January of, of this year, because we're seeing some policy responses, but we're also seeing a lot of behavioral responses. We're seeing uh, far fewer formal lockdowns, but people are reacting as though there are forms of, uh, of, of lockdown. And so that obviously will slow things. As I mentioned, I think in many parts of the world, not just in the U.S., you're going to see similar sorts of slowdowns that will also uh, inhibit production because people will be, since so many people are being infected, and if the guidance is to, to uh, stay home, stay isolated for five days or 10 days, that means a lot of production workers are not going to be there. There's gonna be a lot of, uh, lot of pressure there. And as I also mentioned, I think in, in much of Asia, given the um, alternative approach, which has been um, uh, to try to uh, adhere to a zero COVID policy, that's gonna be much more difficult with a variant that is so easily transmissible. So you're gonna see uh, lockdowns and sustained uh, lockdowns that I think will lead to uh, some supply shortages pushing up pushing up price pressures in, uh, in countries like the US and, and Western Europe and the UK, because just as the Omicron variant will be sort of fading here, it'll be taking off a bit more in, uh, in Asia and there'll still be, uh, still be lockdowns. And so that's when demand is gonna be coming back up 
but the supply is not going to be there. And so I think you're going to see some very strong price pressures. Now, obviously, central banks can't do anything directly about the supply side, but they have to worry about it because it can affect expectations. So even if it's not monetary policy that is driving driving the increase in prices. And I think all of us agree that it at least has something to do with it. Some people would argue it's, it's all, some people argue it's only part of it, but uh, it is at least a, a part. They have to act because otherwise inflation expectations could rise. If inflation expectations become unanchored, then people start demanding very high wage increases. We're starting to see some significant increase in, uh, in wage demands. If that is persistent, beyond um, just the next few months, then you can get into a 1970s-style wage uh, price spiral where there's very high demand for, or that workers demand more, firms are willing to uh, to acquiesce because they feel that they can push price increases on, and then you get into this difficult situation that it's very tough for central banks to get out of. And that's why I think it's super important that they act as quickly as possible. And I agree with you that I, I think it's, uh, I, I don't think it's the, uh, the best approach for the ECB to be saying, we're only going to be doing more going forward, count on us for more, because I think the price pressures are only going to get greater and people will lose the faith and uh, inflation expectations kind of anchored. The question is, has the Fed waited too long? So far, we haven't seen inflation expectations move up too much, at least market-based measures. And so I think they still have the, the chance to do it. We haven't seen inflation expectations move up too much in Europe, but I think they're in much more risk of inflation expectations becoming unanchored uh, because they're going to have to do a pretty major policy shift to try to prevent that. Zoom in explained about China's high debt ratio and treading carefully in terms of slowing growth. Randy continued with more on the US outlook and also touched upon the leverage picture. Here he is. There's also a debt issue in the US and actually much of the West over the last um, two years, an enormous increase in both government debt and private sector debt. No surprise when interest rates are, are zero or in much of, of Europe negative, that's a pretty strong incentive to, to take, on, uh, take on more debt. Uh, particularly when inflation is running high, that helps to reduce the the debt burden, makes it much easier for borrowers to uh, to repay. So it's no surprise that we've had that incentive, but it also makes things more fragile. And that's true, as Min said, whether it's in Asia or it's in um, the US or, or, or in Europe. And so I think that is one of the key risks going forward. If there should be something that would lead interest rates to go up very rapidly. So let's say people lost faith in the Fed that inflation would persist, the Fed's not moving fast enough, and you get long-term rates starting to move up, and the Fed then having to chase that, so a little bit like a 1994 type type situation, to try to f- make sure that inflation doesn't get out of control and inflation expectations don't get out of control, that could be really problematic. So that's my, uh, that's my worry scenario, is something leads to very sharp increases in the long rate, the Fed starts uh, raising the, uh, the short rate, and so debt servicing burdens increase significantly both in the private and, and public, uh, public sectors, and then you get a, a crunch that comes. I don't think that's, that's not my most likely scenario, but it is one that uh, if I were an investor, I'd be thinking about hedging against that because it's not a high probability event, but it's one that I think would have very strong negative impacts on many uh, uh, many asset prices. Now, how can we avoid that? I think what the Fed is doing is attempting to avoid that by starting to say, okay, inflation is not transitory. We're going to have to act more rapidly for that. And also explaining that to the market, giving a framework for, uh, for the market to understand that. And so far, those men said there's a chance for, for volatility going forward. Things have been, that pivot and that transition's 
been very smooth in the markets, relatively little volatility for such a big change in such a small period of time. And that's really going to be another key. Can the Fed explain what it's doing in such a way that we can have a smooth transition out, not have inflation expectations um, go up, but the Fed do the right thing and uh, and tighten sufficiently so that we, we can gradually bring inflation back down without causing a taper tantrum and without causing uh, a debt crisis. Not so easy. Uh, this is a real tight rope walk for, uh, for Jay Powell and his colleagues. On the markets, I mean, we've seen an unprecedented constructive environment in financial markets, many markets at all-time highs. There is, of course, the risk with a major monetary policy correction that also markets would start pricing in some correction in markets. So what is your outlook on markets? And again, starting with uh, you, Min, and then uh, going to Randy. From market point of view, market look for the long-term bounce yield, right? I think the bonds here will increase quite dramatically in, in the situation. I, I think in the year 2022, I think that's the first issue. So we'll check the whole bonds market. And with inflation increase, I think the equity market also can be very tricky. Depends on where you are, right? Uh, and so, but I don't think uh, the equity market will perform as strong, I mean, particularly in the U.S. Uh, in the past two years as well. Yeah, and I guess the, the, the point that, that you both mentioned before is one scenario is that if the Fed stays on course and it works well, they can go to that terminal rate and not overshoot that rate. But if they need to actively tighten, that rate might not be enough in the short term to bring inflation back under control if there is a sign that, say, wage price processes, which is the other part, uh, not just the spillbacks, but wage price dynamics seem to be different today. I mean, we were, uh, where are you both looking when you try and map out uh, sort of your own inflation numbers? Are you looking at the beige books and some feedback of corporates uh, on bottlenecks, on labor market dislocations, on wage price dynamics? Uh, is that a factor we need to look at more now? On the labor market side, so certainly I look at things like, you know, I, I mentioned quit rates, very, very high, near record highs, enormous number of openings for jobs. People can't fill the jobs. When we've had some low uh, jobs numbers in a few months, it wasn't because the job market was weak. It's because it was so strong. Firms were unwilling to raise wages enough to get people in because they know if they raise wages at the entry level, that means they've got to raise wages throughout the entire structure. And for service firms, and the U.S. is very much a service-based economy, Labor costs can be 70% of total costs. So you've raised your entire cost basis quite significantly. That's why I think firms have been slow to do that, but I think they're going to start doing that more and we're starting to see more, more wage pressure. So I look very much on that piece because that's also the piece where you can get the, uh, the change in the labor market and, uh, and pricing dynamics. So I look at that very, um, very carefully. I think one of the challenges globally, and, and certainly that, uh, well, let's, let's say specifically for, for China, is that you've got an, a very rapidly aging population. And so over the last few decades, one of the great benefits that China has had is bringing so many people into the formal economy, tens of millions of people each year. But now with uh, a, a significantly contracting labor force, or at least uh, of uh, working age uh, labor force, that's going to be a challenge to, to manage the, the growth rates going forward. So I think that's another uh, issue that, uh, that China and some other countries are, uh, are facing, one that Japan has faced for, for many years and obviously you know, has had, uh, had gone into a very slow growth phase. I don't think China's going to go to anything like a, as slow a growth phase as, uh, as Japan did. 
but I think that is another um, challenge that uh, that China is going to be facing. Randy Krosner. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance every week here on Monocle 24. Thanks to Axel Weber, to Randy Krosner and to Zoomin for their insights this week. You can listen again and find out more at monocle.com or catch up via your preferred podcast platform. And for more from the GCC, just head to ubs.com now for more information, insights and inspiration. And do keep an eye and an ear on this programme in the coming weeks as we feature more great speakers from the conference. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24.